Libraries can be sites for the democratisation of access to knowledge, but they can also perpetuate systems and structures of knowledge that are exclusionary or elitist. In this episode of the DWF podcast, hear from the founders of alternative approaches to library building, the Community Reading Room, Incendium Radical Library, and Dark Nook Travelling Library. You can hear me okay? Great. <laughs> okay, we'll get started. Um, I'd like to acknowledge that we're gathered on the traditional lands of the Bunurong and the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. I would like to acknowledge any other First Nations people in the room. So today um, I have um, two other speakers with me. Our session today is called uh, Remaking Libraries. So over the next 30 minutes you'll hear from the founders of the Incendium Radical Library and the IRL Info Shop, Annalise Arfat, um, and the Duck uh, Nook Travelling Library, Kylie Tran on the far left, and myself, Tariqa Bolatangidi, the founder of the Community Reading Room. So this discussion is really aimed at exploring our motivations for setting up these spaces and these collections, considerations of location and presence, and how these collections are cultivated, curated, and activated by communities. So we'll talk between ourselves for about 30 minutes. Um, if you have any questions, just make note and we'll have question time at the end. So I'm going to begin with some introductions. So um, Annalise Afat uh, is a community organiser, mother of two, facilitator and educator who is passionate about transformative justice and empowering people to create change around sexual assault and abuse. She is co-founder of Undercurrent Community Education Project and also co-directed its previous incarnation, A World Without Sexual Assault, from 2007. Annalise also works as a therapeutic family violence practitioner with LGBTIQ plus peoples, a men's behaviour change practitioner, family violence consultant, con counsellor and trainer. Annalise is passionate and about accountability, Mally Fowl, and coordinates the Incendium Radical Library and IRL InfoShop. As an educator, Annalise works with persons of diverse cultural and economic backgrounds and believes that social change can only occur collectively. So Welcome. <laughs> Mine's really short, so it all evens like, out. I'm sorry, everybody. <laughs> uh, Kylie Tran is a librarian at the University of Melbourne with a keen interest in human rights issues, such as access to information and equitable services as they relate to libraries and the communities that they serve. She is part of Librarians for Refugees, Vietnamese for Refugees and the Dirk Nok uh, Travelling Library Project. Lately, she's been researching Vietnamese writers of the diaspora as a way to connect with her uh, Vietnamese identity. So welcome, both of you. Uh, and my name is Tarika Bolatangidi. I'm a visual artist um, and founder of the Community Reading Room, which is a pop-up collection of books that centre the work of non-Western um, creative practitioners. Um, and I'm a lecturer in art and performance at Deakin University uh, in Burwood and a mother of three girls. So, so that's us. So for those who are not familiar with the spaces that I've just introduced, I was wondering if each of you could sort of give us a bit of background um, about what they are, the type of collections that you have, um, and how they were found and why, I guess. Who would like to start? Yeah, sure, I'll start. Um, so, Duck Nook Travelling Library. So, Duck Nook translates to uh, Earth and Water. And we're, I'm part of a collective who's interested in exploring the Vietnamese diasporic experience in Australia and increasing the presence and literacy around Vietnamese literature. 
And so we have come up with the idea of a travelling library. We thought that would be a really good vehicle to share knowledge and bring communities together. And what we want to do is uh, promote Vietnamese literature with a focus on Australian literature to promote local artists. Um, and themes include community and home and connection, gender, sexuality and so on. So um, it's an idea. It's at its infancy. We kind of come together and that's what's united us. And we are excited about where this is going to head. When you say we, who are the yeah. other, your co-founders in yeah. this project? So there are four of us. We all met through Vietnamese refugees. Um, we're all second generation Vietnamese um, people. So that includes Hung, who's a uh, radio producer, um, zine producer and poet. We have Lana, who's also a producer and artist, and uh, Phuong Nhi, who's a media lecturer. So kind of diverse backgrounds who have been um, united in the same desire to learn more about our heritage, but also share that knowledge with others. And we'll talk a bit further later on about why the travelling library. Mm. Um, and Elise, the Incendium Radical Library started as a mobile space. Actually, it's grown out of a whole, a long heritage. Can you tell us a bit about the other spaces that it has been before being located where it is? Yeah, it's, um, it's a bit of an interesting library because it probably spans like a 20 plus year history. So um, we sort of see it now as Incendium Radical Library, but it's an amalgamation of um, quite a few radical libraries um, who, which were held at sort of different social centres. Um, and so it's sort of part of like a Melbourne movement, um, you know, lefty movement building history. Um, and so I used to go and visit Barricade Books when I was 16. It was on Sydney Road. It was an anarchist bookstore. And we still have some of the Barricade Books in, in Sindium Radical Library now. Um, and it moved from there um, to HOP, which was a community space um, in the north of Melbourne, in and off, um, to Loophole. Um, and then I was teaching at the uh, Melbourne Free University for Asylum Seekers. And uh, I guess a bunch of us thought that it would be great to also have a library. Um, and so then I had all of these books in my garage um, at home from um, the community spaces that um, had come to an end. Um, and so I was like, okay, I'll cut up um, these books um, up the stairs of Trades Hall uh, every Wednesday. And so that started the mobile library, the mobile incendium radical library. Um, but after my back sort of started hurting, I decided to try and find a permanent space. Uh, and that turned into um, a permanent space at Hot Shots Community Centre in Footscray and now um, incendium radical library in West Footscray. Mm -hmm. And how, how do you think the, um, your community has sort of changed their interaction with the space and the collection since you've become, had a permanent space? as opposed to when you yeah. were travelling? I think in really... Um, I think there's benefits of having, like, the mobile um, library um, as well as having a permanent space. I think um, probably based on location, really. Mm. So the mobile library was based at Trades Hall, so, like, highly accessible to, like, lots of different people um, because the city was often a place that was, like, quite easy for people to get to. Mm. Um, whereas now we're based in Westfoot's Grey, which is, you know, near a train station, but um, it's, it's for the communities in that area, really. Like, n um, not that many people travel from, like, um, you know, anywhere else in Melbourne to come there. 
Um, but, you know, that's part of really um, something that we've done in terms of the creation, curation of the library was to really think about the, you know, community that we, we sit in. And um, I also live in the West. We, um, most of the people that run the library and the space live in the West. Mm. Um, and so the community reading room that, that I operate, um, it, it's sort of a, it's one that I move around to different art spaces um, that I will either approach or will be invited to. Um, sometimes it pops up at various um, festivals. So my background is Fiji and Australian, so the Pacific, um, Pacific Arts Festival has been one that I've worked with closely um, and other exhibitions and things. So it, it sort of has more of, a, I guess, a gallery mm. context, which changes the way that people interact with the books and, and the ideas in the space. Um, but why do you think we need these spaces? Why, why have these sort of collections and archives that come out of very personal interests um, obviously extend to uh, our communities that we belong to, but why do you think we need these spaces outside institutions? Kylie. Um, good question. Uh, so, as someone who works in a, in a huge institution with clear parameters around who we're supporting and what we do, so we support university students and staff, and it's about supporting their research and their education um, and to support their study. With that in mind, I think that um, that also means that there are groups on the fringes that may not be well represented, collections that may <coughs> prioritise Eurocentric or Western dominant ways of thinking. And as someone with a Vietnamese background, that was really apparent to me through my work. So I thought, why don't we create a space where we represent the people um, that should have stronger voices and try and increase um, the presence and support around that, and which is why we came up with that idea mm. of a travelling library. Yeah, mm. um, and I think the sort of history of, um, in, like, Incendium Radical Library was to was a critique of institutions, um, so both, like, academic institutions uh, and even spaces like public libraries, which are really bound um, by by what you're saying, Kylie, of particular parameters. Um, and, you know, I love libraries. I grew up um, going to my public library, like, every weekend um, and really devouring, you know, those spaces. And I still really adore those libraries. But um, I know that they also have specific collections um, and there's lots of books that aren't in those libraries, lots of marginalised voices um, that don't make it to those shelves. And so part of creating radical libraries was to um, represent those voices uh, and to create a space where they're all together. Um, so people that are interested in like community organising or movement building, um, it's a really sort of easy space to go um, and, you know, have all of the books right there that are um, going to sort of open up, um, I guess, our ideas of like, you know, critical thinking and. Um, and maybe, yeah, moving um, people towards sort of building movements <laughs> yeah. and like a critique of, yeah, um, of white supremacy and capitalism and, yeah, homophobia, transphobia. Yeah. yeah. I, I can resonate with, with, both, with both of you in terms of the, the motivation. So um, particularly Kylie, I think, you know, out of the institution, you know, um, through my art education, um, I often felt that the texts, the artists that we looked at, the, the books that we were sort of steered towards and the collection at the library didn't really represent the type of work that I was interested in or the histories that resonated with my experience, my lived experience and those, you know, close to me. So um, 
that was one of the main reasons that I started the, my own collection, was actually kind of fill the gaps of, of what wasn't in the, the local university libraries. Um, and it was after visiting the Stuart Hall Library um, at the Institute of International Visual Arts in the UK that I, I sort of realised that we really need a space like that in Australia. And so I just approached a friend who had a space over in, um, in Footscray. It was mm -hmm. called the Colourbox Studios. It was just a little pop-up space, an old tattoo studio that had been... that was empty. And she was inviting people to come in and, and do various things. So that was the first iteration of the reading room that I had. Um, and the thing I like about having a pop-up space is that you can, you can kind of respond to the community that you are in and the conversations are always different mm. depending on the different mm. um, space that you're in. Mm. I, th I think yeah. that... Sorry. I think that um, alternate, alternative libraries have a, have a place with institutional libraries. Mm. Like, there's a complementary relationship. Yeah. Uh, it's not a, a criticism of... Um, university libraries, of, of public libraries. But I think um, libraries exist as a way to address disparity in society. Our libraries have a role to provide education, literacy, and a safe space for those who need it. Um, and in a university context, for those in a university who don't have spaces at home they can occupy or access to um, textbooks that they need for their study. But I think alternative mm. libraries have such a special role in, in that whole kind of picture uh, of libraries in general. Yeah. Completely. And I think if, um, you know, thinking about university spaces, so many people that I know that access in Syndium Radical Library are really burdened <laughs> by um, the prospect of, like, um, the university mm. is, like, a really elite space, mm -hmm. um, you know, that they find difficult in terms of entering. And then, you know, they access public libraries, but it doesn't have the sort of books that they really um, want to be reading. So it's um, about sort of, yeah, filling those gaps and thinking about how we can sort of add on to what is there um, and address the limitations that um, institutions do have, particularly in terms of, I, I feel that um, if we're looking at, like, the collection of books in um, public and university libraries, I think they are bound by... Um, I guess, the thinking of the time. Um, and so I'm interested in sort of creating spaces where we can um, ch challenge that. So in saying that, I'm interested in learning more about how you create, curate your collections. Um, I know that we often are approached by people who generously want to share their whole collection <laughs> with us to, to build our archives and stuff, but you can't always accept all of that. So how do you curate what, what is kept in and what you kind of don't? on what you reject mm. um, we're at the establishing phase so we're in this lovely space where we think we want everything out there possible uh, written by Vietnamese authors so we haven't come up with a curation policy or an acquisition policy at all and it's so freeing as someone who works in libraries to be able to just collect what we want and what we think people will engage with so as a good librarian, we've created a reference library and we're um, amassing citations. And the next step is to go out there and source material based on what we think um, the communities will find engaging. But what we really want to do is promote text and literature from those who don't have a voice, from local artists who don't have uh, mainstream recognition and, and start from there. 
to pick up on that point, I think that was also one of the reasons that the reading room started was because there was a lot of creative arts coming out of our community, but there weren't texts to contextualise it that were made really, that were readily available. So I think that's a, such a wonderful point because we need those, um, those archives of all that ephemera that um, the, you know, it's not just the published, you know, uh, major publications, mm -hmm. but it's the the catalogue essays and and yeah. the all the other material mm -hmm. that kind of supports that creative output mm -hmm. that can kind of get lost. Mm -hmm. What about your your curatorial approach? Um, it is very much based on the interests of uh, me and my friend, <laughs> but also on what is um, really heavily borrowed in the library, mm. um, which is, um, so we have a really huge um, collection of First Nations um, Aboriginal writers, um, and then following on from that, um, writers of colour all around the world, um, and um, also a huge amount of, like, um, uh, feminist literature, um, and our hugest section really in that is um, women of colour, feminist um, writers. Um, and so, and then we sort of go from there into like environment and, um, you know, other sort of like critiques of the state. And we've got like a big anarchist and Marx section. Um, and I think the, yeah, our deciding of that is really thinking about like our, um, you know, um, our, what our sort of scenes and friendship groups and the people that sort of use the space, what their interests are, mm. um, and to, um, yeah, to sort of cater to that um, and really to think that the books that we have in the space is about, like, um, criti like, critical thinking, so anything that really does that. But we also do get a lot of book donations mm. um, and now we have gotten stricter <laughs> so we tend to accept donations but we um, ask that the person sort of stays with us while we look through the books and then they can take mm. the other books away <laughs> because yeah we did have like such a huge amount and I don't know if anyone's been to IRL info shop but it's really small um, and so we can't actually just accept anything yeah and we tend to do like about um, five times a year we actually go through the whole collection um, and take out some of the books that we sort of missed in our, oh my God, why is this book on the shelf? Mm. Um, yeah. And is that also based on feedback from the people who use the space about particular yeah. texts that might be problematic? Or yes, yeah. yeah, it is. Be and because it's um, a collection of like 20 years really of, of many libraries, sometimes we just do miss some books that um, perhaps um, maybe we don't want on the shelves. Can you give us some examples or not yeah. particular titles, yes. but particular content that, yeah. That yeah, I think um, we definitely, when we first started the this version of the library would have still had um, some second wave feminist literature, which um, has a tendency towards transphobia. Um, and so we definitely, um, you know, we're taking those books out of our collection. And, um, you know, sometimes some of those books do have like a, a, a value in terms of reference for like that period of time, but they need to be contextualised. So they need, to, you know, somebody needs to do the work to really like write like something about why this book, um, you know, might have value to understand this historical context of feminism mm. in this way, but it doesn't have value in terms of the harms that it perpetuates. 
um, but we don't have the capacity to do that. We've done that to some of the books, um, not many. Mm. Um, so we tend, we do tend to take those books off the shelf, um, and that does happen by, you know, people um, in our communities and in the local community coming by and saying, "Oh, I, I, I didn't realise this was on the shelf. That's mm. weird to be in this collection." And we'd be like, "Ah, yeah. <laughs> it <Yeah>. is." <laughs> yeah. And um, and I've done sort of similar things where I've, um, you know, just had books in my own collection that I've you know, bought 20 years ago yeah. and then since then read reviews that are far more critical and, and, um, and political and so make me re-look at that text that I may not have looked at for 20 years and, okay, I, that can sort of sit at the back now. Totally. Yeah, so I think it's good to kind of, ref you know, really important, <coughs> in fact, to refresh. Um, Kylie, have you had that kind of um, issue <coughs> in these early stages? Uh, no. So yeah. at the moment we're just reading through, doing lots of research and reading as much as we can to mm. start deciding on, on what we start um, purchasing to kind of showcase. Yeah. And I noticed on the IRL website that you have, uh, you know, you can suggest text that you think mm. should be there, which yes. I think is really great. Do people yeah. make use of that? They do, yes. Yeah. So we have like a wish list and people can write in and tell us what books that they want on the shelves. Um, and so recently we brought five books that people have requested. Mm. Um, so they were, uh, we're waiting for those to come. But, yeah, they'll be on the shelves yeah, soon. That's great. Yeah. So I want to move now to this idea of having located spaces, um, permanent spaces, or the kind of pop-up that I run as opposed to the travelling library, which, Kylie, you're establishing. Um, I'm really interested in how you see that operating and, and why you've chosen to have a travelling library and how you actually envision it will look. Yeah, so um, we have really romantic notions around what this library is going to look like. And I guess we were inspired by... The Vietnamese um, street vendors that have the bikes and the trailers and the, the wooden carts. Um, as uh, Vietnamese in diaspora, we thought the transient nature of a travelling library fits really well. And so our, our vision is that we have this library that we're able to cart around or wheel around and pop up um, in different spaces to engage with the different communities in Victoria. Mm -hmm. And... I think um, getting people to come to you can be challenging, so we thought, why don't we come to people and, and try and meet different um, communities in Victoria. Yeah. And are there other models of, of mobile libraries that you've looked at? To yeah, we've done a lot of Googling. Uh, <laughs> um, and there's a lot, there's a lot mm. out there. Yeah. I think um, practicality is very important. I think we're going to have to start working on some core strength and and, and, <laughs> yeah. and glutes and stuff to be able to cart this actual physical cart around. Um, we may have to think about a more um, permanent location if the collection becomes too unwieldy. Mm. So we're, we're pretty open at this point, but we love the idea of popping up somewhere, engaging with those who are out there at the time, having conversations with people uh, and seeing how that goes. Do you think that that will also um, create its own archive? Are you, in, with these engagements, are you hoping to sort of um, record histories and responses as well, or is that something sort of... No, absolutely. Separate? So okay. we've got people um, as part of that collective, uh, producers and artists, and we're definitely interested in mm. recording um, a, the history of this project and um, sharing, you know, a digital... Um, bibliography of all of all the materials that we start amassing so we can share that digitally as well. I think that will be important. Great. Mm. 
And mm -hmm. Annalise, you've, um, how long has IRL had its a permanent space now? I think over it's been, yeah, about a year. Mm. Yes. No, over a year because we were at Hot Shots, so maybe about two years. And you started yeah. as a non-loan space, moved to yeah. loan, still loan? Yeah. yeah. So we started as loans and then oh, right. non-loans yep. and then loans. Um, and, yeah, lots of really deep discussions about those sort of changes. Um, and I, I think the thinking of... Um, for us of loaning is that we just felt like people didn't get the opportunity to read um, the books that we wanted people to read. Um, and so we do have some books in our collection though that are um, just super expensive and so we do have them on like a shorter loan. Um, so they, they're like a one week loan mm. and there's a few that are like out of print um, and so they're for reading in the space. But that's probably like maybe, you know, 5% of the collection and everything else is available now for a three-week loan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it was, it was a really big decision because also lots of our books don't get returned. Mm. Um, and so <laughs> I can see the librarians being like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> and it's because we don't, like, we don't have like a, um, a fining, like a penalty sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, we just like send a friendly email and um, text the person, be like, hi. <laughs> my friend, <laughs> you know that book? Um, so we actually have like a paid membership thing now. Mm -hmm. um, and so part of that is that it's not, it's not a donation. It's a, you pay the money and then you get the money back, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. when, when your membership is ended. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just like a sort of like a hold, yeah. a money hold in case the book goes missing. Um, then we can use the money to buy that book. Yep. Yeah. But that was also, like, a really big decision and it f still feels really weird. I'm like, oh. I, um, and a few people came in a few weeks ago and didn't have any money, like, a few really young, um, like, people. And I was like, don't worry, don't pay. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so no, like, really? And I was like, I know I'm not meant to do this, but don't worry. <laughs> Hi, I'm Izzy, the Artistic Director at the Emerging Writers Festival. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. We hope you'll check out the rest of the Digital Writers Festival at 2019.digitalwritersfestival.com. You can listen, make and play. And we've got ghosts of the internet, new machine learning tools for writers and experiments in digital storytelling. We've also got some really special webinars, including uh, one with one of my favourite audio producers, Mitra Kaboli from The Heart. And if you're enjoying our podcast, we love you right back. So drop us a review, recommend us to a mate, and hit subscribe wherever you like to listen. And so in thinking about the communities that you, um, that you belong to, yeah. um, how do you think about... Like, so tell us a bit about Undercurrent because that, has, you know, that shares the premises. It does, yeah. So how do the, sort of the activities of Undercurrent um, overlap with the collection and inform yeah. each other? Uh, well, I think for, like, personally for me, I've spent a lot of time um, doing stuff around transformative justice, so trying to build communities that can respond to um, family violence, sexual assault without a reliance or leaning on um, the criminal legal system or the social services sector, um, mainly in a response to, um, you know, people in our communities who could not lean on those systems um, or did not want to, um, particularly for things like policing and higher criminalisation due to, you know, being people of colour or um, being trans or gender diverse. 
Um, and so I guess all of the projects that I do for me are really, um, like they make such sense to me, my mind of being really connected. Mm. So yes, I'm working in a violence prevention project. So then of course I would want to um, have a whole bunch of literature available um, for people to read on like critiques of the state um, and critiques of institutions. And, um, and so yeah, they're so intertwined. Yeah. But you have, you also have, um, so regular events like we do, the yeah. reading group um, and like spoken word evenings yeah. and there's a play group. Tell yes. us a bit about that, that yeah. programming that you do. Um, and so the programming is really based on what people in um, the local communities and also broader than that, um, like people in the IRL InfoShop Collective also um, want to do. So I run like a prisoner letter writing mm -hmm. um, workshop once a month. I've written to prisoners since I was really young. Um, and so lots of people from generally like the local um, area come and write once a month mm -hmm. to people. Um, we have a play group. Um, we also, in Sindhya Radical Library, we also host a um, summer writer's residency and a winter's writer's residency. Um, so they're both of the people um, that um, are in that are doing their residencies right now mm -hmm. in the space. Um, and then we do like lots of like poetry readings and workshops and people from the community have like meetings there, um, run their own workshops. Um, and generally like really most, most um, things that people want to do there, um, they do there. And we only charge $5 for the use of the space to be able to pay for the electricity and gas. Yeah. Yeah, right. And it's, it's sort of similar to how I operate the reading room in that the books sort of exist in the background, but they also yeah. kind of create the thematic um, focus, I guess, of the events yes. that take place. So, you know, often um, I'll work with other curators and artists who want to have particular events like spoken yeah. word nights or zine making workshops. Um, we've had the photograph women's photographers group have a presentation there. Um, a whole bunch like yoga for women of colour. Um, a whole range of kind of activities yeah. and stuff that kind of activate the space but also relate to the collection itself. Um, in your role, Kylie, um, within the institution, um, how, how do you sort of, um, are you in, involved in programming various kind of activities that take place in that space? Uh, to an extent, um, probably not as much, um, yeah. But I think for uh, the Duck Milk Collective have talked about um, organising events uh, and kind of bringing the two together, so collections and performance. Mm. Um, so, yeah, talks and readings and book clubs, um, but also just, like, one-on-one -on -one conversations that you can have with individuals that you meet, um, you know, in that space that we create. I think what's really important, and I think it's what informs these spaces for you, is the idea of cultural safety um, and that... Some of our spaces, library spaces, aren't culturally safe, um, and and that there are things that we can do to improve that. So, by cultural safety, we're talking about the provision of physical um, and emotionally safe spaces where uh, the shared respect in your identity isn't denied, so that you can see your representation in the space that you're in. And um, I guess through the work that I've done in my professional role. Um, a big part of it is looking after library spaces and what we realised was that a lot of the uh, First Nations population didn't feel comfortable coming into our spaces and that's really raised lots of questions around 
why is that and what are the things that we can do to promote that sense of cultural safety. So for the duck milk project, that's so core to, to what we want to create. Like it's at the forefront of our minds. Um, yeah. So how do you think the institution is, uh, is actually um, taking steps to make spaces more culturally safe for people? Good question. Um, I think speaking to the community is so important. Um, one of the stories that were uh, that was relayed to us was the um, that there was a particular computer in in our spaces that the First Nations students felt comfortable using, and they would come in uh, in a group, and they even though there was a bank of computers available, they would all queue up for this one computer because they'd seen one of their peers use it, and they thought, okay, I can use this. And it made me think, imagine coming into a space where you didn't even feel comfortable using what was available. And what are the assumptions and things we take for granted as people who feel comfortable in those spaces? So I think having a conversation and understanding what would make a culturally safe space is a great step um, towards mm. making changes. And I think on an individual level, we can... Um, make those changes through our interactions with the people that we um, assist and support. Yeah. And I think also you've spoken about being self-aware um, mm. about how, you know, what, what is in our collections and, and what might trigger mm. some communities and some people and, and just being aware of that mm. and, and avoiding that, that yeah. situation. Yeah. And I mm. think for me it's also making things really obvious as to your collection Mm. Um, so, you know, I think it is really important to have markers, you know, so we um, at IRL InfraShop, we have a really huge language map that's like in the centre of the space mm. um, and we have like indicators around the space around what we, you know, our beliefs around that this land was stolen um, and that we're still living in neo-colonisation. I think it's important to have those markers in, in like for me in these spaces mm. so that, um, you know, when... Aboriginal First Nations people are coming into that space, they can see um, that, you know, what our beliefs are about um, this space right now being on stolen land. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Did you want to add something? Yeah. Um, I know that Monash, for example, have created positions uh, where their focus in the libraries to um, support the Indigenous population. So they're really positive steps towards addressing the idea of cultural safety. And I have an amazing colleague... Um, Ruth McConkie is working with First Nations academics to look at how to cite their creative works mm. and to discuss, you know, custodians of knowledge and, and how do you address works that don't fit into the, the standard um, that we're used mm. to. So there is amazing stuff happening, which is a really positive thing. Yeah. And so how, how, can, how can the audience and others um, find out about... Um, uh, forthcoming projects and installations and, um, uh, yeah, what, what events are coming up for you? Um, there's always events at um, IRL Info Shop, so j um, just have a look um, at the probably the Facebook and the Instagram. <laughs> I'm not like a social media person, so I sort of um, hate plugging that stuff, but it is where <laughs> the events are. Yeah. Um, we're also one of the um, projects that we're doing in terms of our press, so we released the work of Chi Tran last year, um, and I'm currently working on a small collection of poems from people who are incarcerated around Australia, 
Um, and so I'll be releasing that book in December and we'll have like a night and some of the voices of the people that, um, whose um, poems were published. Um, so look out for mm. that. Um, and yeah, we have regular events so, and you're welcome to come. Um, we're pretty underground at the moment, so I guess um, we're planning on having an, a launch of some kind in the near future. Um, you can come speak to me if you want to find out more or stay in contact or have a conversation. Uh, yeah. Cool. Uh, and the community reading room has um, Instagram and um, a website, and I usually do a, a website for the various projects just because I love building them and I think it's fun. <laughs> and <laughs> so they've got multiple things scattered everywhere. Big digital footprint. Um, thank you both. Um, I'd like to open up the floor for questions now. Does anyone have any um, questions that they'd like to ask any of us? Would you welcome support and advocacy from public libraries? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Most definitely. Yes. Mm. I was um, recently, um, I was talking when we were out backstage about that, the new cardigans. Mm. Yeah, they came um, and looked at Incendium Radical Library and I was so obsessed with that group. I was like, <laughs> oh my goodness, librarians are amazing. <laughs> um, like, I'm not a librarian, so... Um, yeah, it's, yes, most definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so an extension of that question is, um, would you be interested in um, sort of like a pop-up uh, sort of roving collection, collections that you no longer need? You can leave it in like for Yarra Plenty Library Service. We've got makerspace rooms. So if you leave your brochures, leave a, a sample of your collections you don't need, pop around because we've got the nine branches as well. Um, that yeah, would you be interested in something like that? Yeah, yeah, that sounds, that sounds amazing. Yeah. Which council yeah. are you? So uh, Yarra Plenty cover right. three councils: so Whittlesea area, the Inilamik, uh, so Eltham and yeah. all that, and then of course the Banyal, which is. Ivanhoe, um, Rosanna, and Watsonia. Yeah. So okay. quite a range, uh, northeast. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Anybody Hi, I, I want to say first, thanks very much. Um, that was really, really interesting. I think you're all doing great um, work. I'm just interested, um, um, do any of you have any thoughts on like um, institutions strategically developing collections to fill um, kind of gaps? Or do you think that um, communities kind of need or prefer to have that um, safe space outside of institutions? I'm um, just interested in any opinions you might have on that. Mm. I think for me both should happen. Like I think um, that would be amazing if, if institutions did that, but so many people won't access institutions. Um, and so probably all of the spaces um, are needed. Yeah, I think there's just so, so many barriers um, to many like um, communities that I'm part of um, to access those spaces. Yeah. 
I'd actually like to ask a question of librarians because I'm, you know how a lot of, you know, all our e-books now, you, can people access those if they don't have a library, if they're not a member of the institution? Or do you have to log in to see, to uh, see them? Well, university context, you have to be a uh, university patron, but I think State Library have um, you do? big databases that are accessible, but you do have to join up as a member, which is free. And I, I think community public libraries are the same. So there is some kind of membership, not necessarily a fee, um, but you, you do need to join to access that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I, in, in relation to that question, I think both. Mm. Um, both are really important. But again, I think it's that, that some spaces just, you know... Um, I mean, I think it, we had a chat last week about the importance of just being, you know, of institutional libraries just being open, mm. especially for international students. Yeah. We've, we've all, you know, experienced and witnessed, you know, how that interaction has changed when we've moved to, like, 24-hour yes. um, opening times on campuses. Um, but then there's a whole bunch of other related issues around that, you mm. know, in terms of, like, physical safety and, yes. and the support. Can you talk us through mm. a bit of that? Because I know that, you know, you've, you've kind of engaged with all of those issues recently. Yeah, sure. So in, um, in my work at the university, we did some research early in the year where we spoke to the student population to learn more about where the library fits in, um, in, in their world and what came out and what was really prominent for international students and those that work in university context will know this, is that there's a deep sense of isolation that's felt among the population for various reasons because they're new to the space, that uh, it's a cultural shift, that English isn't their first language, that there's the university systems to navigate, which are really complicated. Um, so something that came out of that was the sense that spaces, library spaces, was an opportunity for them to be in a social space, but not necessarily have to talk to other people, and how important role um, libraries have in, in that sense that they don't have anywhere to go to at home because they live in share houses where it's not conducive to study, um, how they like being in cafes where they can be um, mm. with, with people but alone at the same time. Um, so that made us really think about the design of spaces um, and what we want to encourage and support um, and things that we can do to further support them. I guess, yeah, so one, and on one sense you've kind of got the library as sort of refuge in a way. Yeah. But um, I suppose what we're sort of more interested in is creating a space where um, you can see yourself reflected in the collection. Absolutely. So there's, a, there's sort of that, there's a kind of a, a physical space that you can be in, but then there's, um, uh, there's an actual space where you kind of, you know, you feel proud that yeah. you're in that space. I remember um, the uh, Māori um, photographer, Kirsten Little, did a talk at the reading room a few years ago, and she said she could just feel the mana, the spirit, mm from the books and being surrounded by those voices was really important. Yeah, yeah. and I guess um, from a personal point of view, that's what I'm wanting to create for purely selfish reasons because, um, you know, I was born in Australia, English is my first language, but I have a complicated relationship with my Vietnamese heritage and what I want to do is learn more mm. and deepen that relationship and I don't know where to find that, so we thought as a collective why don't we create that space? I think for community libraries, it's hard for you to be all things for all mm. people. Mm. So I think the idea of libraries where you have specific intentions to support 
you know, specific communities is really valuable and I think we can work together really well to complement that. Yeah. Mm, yeah. <coughs> Any other questions? Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> I, um, I, I just put them... I mean, I'm more likely to uh, <coughs> put mine in terms of shape and colour on the wall. Um, <laughs> but then I had an artist come through whose father was a librarian and they actually did a whole two-hour artist talk about the inherent racism of the Dewey Decimal yeah. System. So I'm going to hand over to you to talk okay. about that. <laughs> so I've been doing a lot of reading about this and it's kind of blown my mind. So as a, as a library student, I didn't question anything that I was taught and it was all about absorbing as much as I can. And what ap appeals to me is structure and, and um, principles and guidelines and all those things. But the more I read about the duodecimal system, which is a very kind of Eurocentric way of organising knowledge and information, that uh, there's a history of deep racial bias of sexism, of transphobia, of homophobia, that's deeply ingrained in how we organise information and classify our collections. So um, one of my inspirations, and you should look her up, is Dorothy Parker, who was a university librarian at Howard Uni in the States. And in the 30s, she noticed this racial bias and her um, what she was doing was curating the global black experience, that was, that was her area. And she realised that the duodecimal system was promoting white authors again and again. And she, so she scrapped it. She went, we're not going to do that. We're going to organise by genre and by subject to represent the diversity of voices in the black experience. Um, and she did her own thing. And she didn't um, curate collections through vendors. She went and spoke to academics and authors and developed and built these amazing relationships. And in the end, she built this amazing comprehensive collection. Um, she's unfortunately passed away, but I mean, that's a massive inspiration as someone who's taken all this for granted for a long time. And I think for me, something just kind of switched on in my head where I thought, what other things have I taken for granted in my library practice? And what are some things I can do to really think about what we're doing and maybe dominant voices or, or outlooks that we're perpetuating through the work that we do. Yeah, yeah we, um, I'm not a librarian, so I, I um, don't use the librarian system, two-decimal <laughs> <laughs> system, um, and our books are organised by um, genre. But, yeah, we do start with um, First Nations authors and then um, authors of colour as, like, the first genres and then it sort of goes down, yeah. Mm. Um, and really it's based on um, things that we've noticed that people are really drawn to, um, you know, wanting to, like, be first up in, in a collection, what's really important for people, especially, specifically, like, being on this land here. Mm. Yeah. Actually, one, th one lovely thing I've noticed with the reading room um, is people bring in their own books. So if they know that I'm going to be there for a couple of weeks, they'll actually bring in books that from their collection, just to sit there with my books for a couple of weeks, which is really lovely, is like so just to kind lovely. of fill gaps and um, and speak to the rest of the collection. So it is really lovely. I love how that happens. That's yeah. beautiful. Any other questions? Okay. Yes. Mm. Yeah. 
a great question, actually. I don't, I don't have any fun... Well, I mean, if the last project, the last time I did the reading room at Testing Grounds, I applied for a Creative Victoria grant, so there was that. Um, but that doesn't actually fund the books. That's for the artists who are making work around the books. So I used to work for a student association that had a bookshop as a part of it, and we would get for a, a short time before the CEO of that place found out about it, I think, um, we <laughs> would get our books for cost price. So I took advantage of that and just ordered lots of stuff during that time. That, but, that, you know, but now I've got lots of kids and I kind of prioritise their books. Mm. So there's always a kids area too in the reading room when I do. When I, yeah. But yeah. I mean, yeah, how do you support? Yeah, similarly, um, we're self-funded. Um, so IRL Info Shop um, is we pay rent, so we have a shop front. Um, but that is also self-funded. Um, and we recently... The reason we brought some new books was because when the new cardigans came, a few people from there gave us some donations. Mm. Um, and so we were able to buy some new books. Nice. Um, but usually um, me and Tilly buy new books out of our, um, our money. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so we are self-funding as well, so I'm waiting for my tax return. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah. a big purchase, but... I think, um, yeah, donations, um, talking to local artists who are willing to donate some of their works yeah. and kind of promote their work through that. Um, but I guess it's something that we have to think about as a long term. If we want this to be sustainable, um, what are some of the things we can do? So we're open to ideas. I think that's a good point, um, artists. Like I've got a, a friend who always sends me catalogues from exhibitions that she goes to in Aotearoa. Um, and if there are people I know who are travelling... I'll say, can you just pick me up this catalogue and I'll pay you back? Or if mm, it's a free catalogue, yes. they'll just get me a couple of copies and then they become part. So it's just people kind of knowing about it and then sometimes people just randomly see something they think will fit with the, the collection. So, mm. yeah, it's a bit of a mix. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, any other questions? All right. I think we are done, ladies. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. We hope to see you right here online for the rest of the Digital Writers Festival program. This podcast series was put together by our brilliant program producer, Lynn Nguyen, and the audio was produced by the fantastic Ahmed Yusuf. Our theme music is the magical Huntley's Please from their EP, Songs in Your Name. You can find them online as Huntley Music. This episode was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge that First Nations peoples are the first storytellers of this land and that their sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and to the elders of the lands this podcast reaches.